Sadness. Sadness? Why sadness? Terrible news. What happened? I'm all caught up on Big Mad True Crime. <gasps> Gasp. No. Yeah. No um, more binging? No, no more binging. That's the worst. When you gotta wait a whole week in between episodes, it takes the fun out of it. It does. But lucky for me, there's quite a few other ones that I follow, so I will still have good content to listen to. True. Keep, keep you busy. But for us, it's exciting because this week we are talking about the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper, a man who devised a plan to hijack an airplane. He got away with $200,000, parachuted out of the plane, and then went missing and has never been discovered. It's craziness. I'm very excited to get into this story because it's pretty wild that this actually happened in real life. But before we get started, the wine for this episode that we're drinking is a sweet red wine from Michigan St. Julian Winery, and it is called Sweet Revenge, and it is sweet. It lives up to the name. Very sweet. Not to mention the bottle looks kind of cool, too. I know, yeah. You got to check out the pictures we post of it um, on our social medias. But getting into D.B. Cooper, the FBI has called this bizarre case one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history. So, on Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, which happened to be the day before Thanksgiving, a man going by the name of Dan Cooper, he bought a $20 one-way ticket on Northwest Orient Airlines with cash. Holy cheap ticket, Batman. $20? Right? I wish... Plane tickets were that cheap still. Could you imagine? I would never be home. I can't even make it to Ohio for $20 right now. Seriously. Driving. (laughs) Seriously. But yeah, the flight was number 305, and it was leaving from Portland, Oregon, headed to Seattle, Washington. And Dan Cooper, um, a.k.a. known as DB, I don't really understand why DB, kind of random, but uh, he was described as being in his mid-40s. He was wearing a business suit and, like, a black raincoat over his suit, some brown shoes, a white shirt, and a black tie. He also carried a dark briefcase and, like, a lunch paper brown bag with him. So he had, he had quite the look going on for him. <laughs> I'm sure he blended right in. Yeah. Well, apparently he did. <laughs> While passengers were on the plane waiting before it took off, Cooper was placed in 18C and proceeded to order a bourbon and soda. My man. Gotta loosen up, I guess, before the flight took off. (laughs) Yeah, so the plane had taken off a little after 3 p.m. And right after it took off, Cooper handed the flight attendant a note. And she just put it in her pocket without reading it, which I thought was kind of odd, like... Wouldn't you be like, why is someone handing me a note? Like, what does this say? But I guess maybe, you know, she thought he was, like, hitting on her, trying to give her his phone number, and I guess I wouldn't want to read that in front of somebody either while I was working. Um, But that was not the case. DB noticed that she didn't read it, and he got her attention, and he said, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Like, just so nonchalant. Oh, you know, I just got a bomb. Just 
so you know, you better read that. Um, I don't know, why write a discreet note if you're just gonna, like, blurt it out anyways? Hey ma'am, can I get some peanuts, uh, whiskey, bourbon? Oh, and I have a bomb. Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Cooper told her the bomb was in his briefcase and asked her to sit next to him. So he opened his briefcase to show her, like, these red-colored sticks that were surrounded by, like, an array of wires. And I kind of have to wonder, like... I- if this was, like, a legit bomb or if it just kind of looked like a bomb. But, I mean, if I was in her position, I'd do what he say either because I don't want to take the chance if it is a real bomb. But after he showed her that, Cooper asked the attendant to write down what he was saying and then take it to the captain. So on this note, um, she wrote, and this is quoted, I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash. Put in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes when we land i want a fuel truck ready to refuel no funny stuff or i'll do the job side note i love that he uses the words knapsack and funny stuff it's just like so old-timey sounding well i mean (laughs) fits the time but it's just really funny to hear now but one of the weird details was that he wanted two hundred thousand dollars all in $20 bills. Like, that's very specific. Yeah. Specific. The flight landed in Seattle, and Cooper exchanged the 36 passengers on the plane for the money and the parachute, although he did keep some crew members on the plane, and he had the plane take off from Mexico City. He also requested that the plane stay below 10,000 feet. My thing though with this kind of is like couldn't someone at some point call out on the radio to like let someone know in seattle that this was happening so that the police or fbi could show up right when they landed like they informed someone to get the money so why not inform the fbi like someone got there with two hundred thousand dollars in time but why not get the fbi there in time i don't know i guess maybe being with a bomb they weren't taking any chances right yeah But about midway through the flight to Mexico City, um, D.B. put on a pair of dark dark wraparound sunglasses. Um, And you can actually view these, like, in the popular sketch that was later drawn of D.B. And we'll also put this picture up on our Instagram highlights as well. Um, But a little after 8 p.m., when the plane was somewhere near Seattle and Reno, Cooper jumped out of the rear doors... Um, By the way, this type of plane was a Boeing 727. Um, I'm not a plane person, so that means nothing to me. But if you are, fun fact for you. But he jumped with two of the parachutes and the money in his knapsack. um, And he was never seen again after he jumped, which is wild. 100%. The only evidence left behind was Cooper's black clip on JCPenney tie that he took off before jumping out of the plane. Can I just say, I think it's really funny that they mentioned J.C. Penny. they knew exactly where it came from. Sponsored. <laughs> I wonder why he took it off anyway. Like, was he going to, like, strangle himself with it midair? Like, was it going to, like, get in his eyes? Like, right, or right. was he just kind of being funny and kind of like cat and mouse, I'm going to leave this evidence for the cops? Right, exactly. Like, why even wear it if you're just going to take it off then? But the FBI actually was able to get some small DNA sample off of this tie. 
So kind of jumping right into the investigation, the case was called Norjack, um, and that stood for Northwest Hijacking. So this investigation lasted for decades. The plane was highly searched, like from top to bottom, and investigators desperately were like searching for any type of evidence that they could found that they could find or that may have been left behind by Cooper. And they especially paid close attention to the $20 bills because the FBI had released the serial numbers on the bills that had been stolen by Cooper. And actually in 1980, so nine years after the crime had taken place, a young boy found like a rotting package filled with $20 bills and they matched the stolen money's serial number. In this package, there was only $5,800 in total. So not much compared to the $200,000 that he took. But yeah, the boy found these bills on a beach in Tinabar while he was just like making a campfire with his dad. And I love that in the interview, they asked him about it, like what he thought about it. And he thought his answer, he's like, it'll be much cooler when I get the money back. You ain't getting that money back, son. So sad. <laughs> but like he legit thought he was going to, they were just going to hand him this evidence back to go spending. <laughs> Poor kid. <laughs> now, there are a lot of theories that when Cooper jumped out, the money actually fell into a river, the Washago. Wash, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Before eventually making its way to the Tina Bar. Kind of a side note, but this theory played out in a popular comedy movie without a paddle. What? What? Dax Shepard. Sorry. Love that. Also, Seth Green and Matthew Willard. We'll give them their shoutouts. <laughs> yes. Um, where four childhood friends planned, and they took a vow that they were gonna. When they got older, they were going to go and they were going to find the money and they were going to find DB. Well, one of the friends passes away. So the three in his honor decide they were going to stick to the vow. And in his honor, they were going to go on this mission, which was played by Dax Shepard, Matthew Lillard, and Seth Green. Very funny movie if you have not seen Best it. Best actors to put in that. It was perfect. Yeah, it's about 20 years old now, but come on. <laughs> So they decide to go on this river adventure that they planned out as kids in honor of their friend. And in the end, they actually find D.B. Cooper and quite a bit of money. Yeah, it was a really great movie. But sadly, unlike without a paddle, in real life, D.B. and most of the money, aside from what that boy found, has yet to be discovered. So when that young boy turned the money into the FBI, there was like so much excitement because they had been looking for, it was nine years at this point and they had no leads at all. But alas, this really led them nowhere with the case. Um, Police and other investigators like scoured the surrounding beaches and like all the areas around it and they found nothing, like absolutely nothing. But if you go by the movie, then it's Burt Reynolds. Yeah, (laughs) blame Burt Reynolds. He's really D.B. Cooper. Spoiler alert. In 1972, the year that followed the hijacking, several letters were sent to the FBI, and all were either, like, confessing to the crime, someone claiming that they knew a recently deceased Cooper and that he did the crime, or a complaint, or, like, claiming to be his brother. Um, So they got a lot of different leads, and they had to, like, look through a lot of different um, suspects. But actually, in November of 1972, two men, 
um, named Donald Sylvester Murphy and William John Lewis were both taken into federal custody on charges of extortion for impersonating Cooper and selling his tell-all story to a tabloid. Which, like, I'm sorry, but are they dumb? Like, why would you publicly come out saying you were this criminal and try to make money from it? Like, you're obviously going to get arrested, like, regardless if you're him or if you're just, like, putting out all these false (laughs) accusations. I don't know, some people, man. A bunch of leads were tracked all over the country and over 800 suspects were considered over the next five years. That's a lot of red string on a board. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All but 24 suspects were eliminated from being investigated. One weird fact is that the initials DB have no actual connection to the case and the FBI isn't sure where those initials even came from. Reportedly, I guess it was a mistake from a wire service that caused him to be called D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper. I don't know. It's just some random wisdom for you. (laughs) The popular sketch of him is considered to be extremely accurate by those who saw him that day. Two flight attendants, Tina Mucklow, that's a name, and Florence (laughs) Schaffner, both spent hours with him on this day on the plane. They were both interviewed separately the night of the hijacking. They both gave pretty much identical descriptions of Cooper, saying that he was 5'10", he weighed 170 to 180 pounds, he was in his mid-40s, had brown eyes. Others who interacted with him in the air on the ground also gave very similar descriptions. I guess his voice was described as like a low, no particular accent, but spoke with intelligent vocabulary, which, I mean, you got to be pretty darn intelligent to pull a crime off like this. Right. Pretty impressive. I'm not going to lie. Nobody got hurt. So, I mean. I know. I kind of, I'm not about crime, okay, but I kind of got some mad respect for D.B. Cooper, especially if he survived. Then he gets all, he gets like a lot of respect for me because that's, that shit's cool. Yeah. So the original charge against Cooper was air piracy, which also means hijacking the plane. But the charge had a five-year statute of limitations. And as more and more time went with no suspects being found guilty and a grand jury later indicted Cooper for violating Hobbs Act, which is a federal state statute designed to prevent extortion, has no statute of limitations. So basically, even if he wasn't caught for 60 years, he'd still be able to be charged. And the pilot, actually, um, his name was William Scott. He told police that he actually himself had chosen the route they were taking to get to Mexico City, which is kind of an interesting fact to me, just because... Like, did D.B. plan where he was going to jump, or was it just a random location that he jumped at before they would land in Mexico City? Um, It kind of could eliminate the idea that Cooper would have had an accomplice, just because if he didn't even plan the route they were taking, like, they wouldn't have known where he was going to land. But there were so many suspects in the case, kind of like Lowe was saying earlier, just like hundreds, But they did narrow it down to quite a few main ones. Um, 
And one of the first major suspects in this case was Richard Floyd McCoy. Now, former FBI agent Russell Kalam um, and his former probation, probation officer Bernie Rhodes were really positive that McCoy was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. They were so positive that they actually wrote a book together about it. So Richard Floyd McCoy was arrested by the FBI in April of 1972 for actually hijacking another airplane. Um, and he was ultimately sentenced to 45 years in prison for that. But when this hijack was investigated, the similarities between that one and Cooper's hijacking were just crazy identical. So that's why he was one of the main suspects. Just like Cooper's hijacking, McCoy hijacked a plane and parachuted off of it. He jumped out of the back rear staircase of a Boeing 727, just like Cooper. Um, He also requested four parachutes. Both passed notes about having a bomb to the flight attendant, and both of the notes both say no funny stuff. Uh, So another weird similarity is that both of these crimes took place when... Brigham University, where McCoy was actually a student, was on break. So it is kind of like a lot of weird similarities. But, I mean, the Cooper case was so highly publicized, so I'm just thinking McCoy got inspired by DB and used his exact method to pull it off. Like, you know, thinking, oh, hey, DB pulled it off, got all this money, got away with it. Why can't I do that, too? Um... But some more interesting details, though, on McCoy is his family actually identified an object that was left on the plane by Cooper as one of McCoy's possessions. However, the object, weirdly enough, was never publicly identified, so we don't really know for sure what it was. Um, But some people on the internet believe that this object was a Brigham University medallion with McCoy's initials on it. So that's like super specific, but I mean, there's literally no proven evidence to support that theory. So you kind of just got to take that with a grain of salt. However, FBI eventually crossed Richard McCoy off of their suspects list because like he ultimately did not match the overall description of Dan Cooper. And while he was in prison for his plane hijacking, he actually escaped and then later died in a gunfight with FBI agents in Virginia, which is, this story just gets crazier and crazier the further we go along. Buckle up. Yep. Don't jump out of a plane. Keep listening. (laughs) So the next big suspect is Dwayne Weber who claimed to be D.B. Cooper on his deathbed. His wife, Joe, said that in the hour of his death, he pulled her close and said, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper. Which, like, okay. Like, she's probably like, what? Um, Like, that was, like, the last thing she was expecting to hear, like, ever. Um, So Joe then decided to take a secret now and dig deeper to see if she could crack this case. Joe said that she remembers Dwayne having sleep terrors quite often where he would say things like leaving fingerprints on a plane. He also had a knee injury that he claimed from jumping out of the plane. Dwayne's handwriting was also found on the margins of a book on D.B. Cooper in the library. Joe says 
that at one point Dwayne had taken her on a trip to the place where that the boy found some of the money, the Tina bar. But at the time, she thought they were just taking a trip. She had no idea the significance to the location until she was putting all these pieces together after his death. Joe also claimed that Dwayne had a Northwest Airline tickets for no reason. Just had them. 29 years after he left the case, the former lead FBI agent, Ralph Hemmelsbach, something like that. Sorry if we screwed up that name, but made a statement on Dwayne Weber saying he doesn't fit the physical description. He does have the criminal background, however, but I'd always she'd always felt that with association of the case, he felt like Weber's story may have credibility, but overall she did not believe it was him. That one we had watched a documentary on this case and Joe Weber was on it talking about her husband Dwayne and that one was definitely the most believable out of all the suspects that was shown in the documentary to me at least yeah it was it was just kind of crazy though too because all three of them were like hand of god that's him yeah they truly believed with all their heart that the person they thought it was was it's yeah. crazy yeah. But the next major suspect that they investigated was Kenneth Christensen. He was um, author, excuse me, Jeffrey Gray's top suspect. Uh, So the theory on him began when Kenneth's brother, Lyle Christensen, was watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, shout out, and became convinced that his brother was D.B. Cooper. Lyle also says that Kenneth gave a deathbed confession saying that there is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Which, like, that's not much of a confession, if you ask me. And I hate when people do that. If you're going to say, I have something to tell you, then you tell me, not, I have something I need to tell you, but I can't tell you. And then die, and then you just will never know. That would drive me nuts. (laughs) But Kenneth was a flight purser uh, for, yes, for Northwest Orient Airlines, which was the same airline in the Cooper case. And Lyle says that Kenneth also loved bourbon. Uh, and that he bought a house shortly after the crime had taken place. Again, I'm not super convinced with all these details. I mean, lots of people like bourbon, lots of people love, you know, buy houses. <laughs> but, however, probably the most convincing part for me, anyway, that has to do with Kenneth Christensen is that the author, Jeffrey Gray, who this guy is pretty much obsessed with this case, um, he's interviewed one of the flight attendants that was that closely interacted with Cooper that day, And she said that Kenneth looked the most like Cooper out of all the suspects that they had. She said that she obviously can't say yes for sure it was him, but he definitely resembled him the most out of all of the suspects that she had seen. Odd, though, that the FBI then crossed Christensen off for not resembling D.B. enough. So, like, you know, which is it? She says that he looked the most like him, but then there's canceling him because he doesn't look like him, so I don't really know how that played out. But another FBI theory um, used to eliminate Kenneth from the suspects because um, he was a paratrooper just after World War II and FBI believed Cooper was not a skilled parachuter at all, which I kind of feel like is a long shot guess on their part. I mean, what do I know? I don't 
go parachuting, so I'm not an expert. But, I mean, the guy was stealing a buttload of money and jumping out of a plane, even if he was skilled. He might have been panicked and he didn't know where he was landing. So, I don't know. But Either way, they never found him. Yeah, exactly. Now FBI Special Agent Larry Carr, he took over the case in 2007 and... He had a theory. He did not believe that Cooper survived the fall. He says, We originally thought that Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. But we concluded after a few years that this was simply not true. The evidence he uses to support that statement is because Cooper uses two parachutes to jump. However, only one of them was a functioning chute and the other one was a training chute that was sewn shut. Also, the chute that was working was a military chute that, like, wasn't able to be steered at all. So, uh, I guess, I don't know, it's just such a mystery, you can't really tell. But yeah, some of the other things that Agent Carr detailed was that no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night, in the rain, with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. I guess that makes sense. (laughs) There was no visibility of the ground where he would have landed at the time of his jump, and it was, like, a completely wooded area, so Carr says that the chances of him surviving were just, like, extremely slim. So, after hearing that, it kind of brought me a little bit back to reality, like, okay, yeah, I mean, realistically, he probably wouldn't have survived under all those conditions, especially with only one working parachute and it not even being steerable and it was a wooded area but at the same time his body the parachute and the belongings like aside from that little amount of money on tina beach were never found like despite that area and surrounding areas being intensely searched by a large amount of people for years and years so what you're saying is we still don't know yep and i have a feeling we will never know now There's also another suspect, Walter Recca. So Carl Lauren, who was claimed to be Walter's best friend, um, he claims that Walter was D.B. Cooper. Um, There's a story on this called A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend. Carl is 100% certain in his belief, even though not a lot of people do believe him but or share the same enthusiasm of him, but he's for sure his best friend is D.B. Cooper. Lauren says that Rekka was a lifelong covert operative for the CIA and other agencies of the intelligence community. As proof, Lauren presented a treasure trove of of foreign passports, including several from Russia, the United States, United Kingdom, a variety of covert identity cards, a diary full of descriptions of assassinations and other covert operations. Well, so this wild story started in Michigan. Hey, <laughs> during the 1950s when Lauren and Rekka were members of the skydiving team. skydiving team attached to the Michigan Air National Guard. They became good friends, which lasted until 2014 when Rekka died at the age of 80. That means that Walter Rekka 
was 37 years old in 1971. A little young for D.B. Cooper, however, Lawrence says that his suspicions of his friend Walter Cooper begin the night of the skyjacking. Walter was as tough as nails, Lawrence said. He was also characterized as being the most skilled, fearless skydiver in the Pacific Northwest, adding emotional emphasis. I know Walter Recca was D.B. Cooper. Was D.B. Cooper. That was like capitalized. Was. <laughs> he was serious. He had serious business. Despite the mountain of passports and foreign security cart, though Lauren was not able to produce a $20 bill from the ransom or the parachute that Cooper used. He admitted to the crime to his family and his friends. He had a criminal background. Rekka signed the affidavit confessing the Cooper skyjacking shortly before his death in 2014. Affirming his crime in front of his niece, Lisa, story, Rekka told Lauren that he removed and bundled up his parachute after he landed outside Clayaloom. Thank you. I don't know if that was right. (laughs) Say it with confidence. (laughs) Roll with it. Keep drinking your wine and keep going. Exactly. So anyway, they covered it up with branches, and there are no accounts of anyone finding the parachute in the area, which may have been newsworthy at the time, given the intense coverage of the hijacking. Rekka said he limped for about a half an hour in the direction of the closest lights that he saw during his descent, which Lauren deducted to be... Hanaway Junction Cafe, the cafe Rekka recalled meeting the musician, the cowboy elf. What the heck is happening? One hell of a night. <laughs> right. So he had motive. He specialized, he had specialized skills to pull it off. He had a nighttime parachute experience, survival training, criminal background. He previously committed armed robbery, a motive. He was so tired of being poor. That was like a big thing that they talked about in the podcast Solved. Mm, um, we all. It's like a seven mini series on, well, wherever you listen to your podcast. But they go back deeper into Walter's background and talked about how he was tired of being poor and wanted to provide better for his family and if he would just disappear or die or they thought he was dead, then his family might get more money. Okay. Whatever. But they talk more about that in there. Um, so he was a Michigan native work worker as a welder in Grand Coley Dam in the northwest Washington in 1971. He also confessed some details only the hijacker would know. That was one witness who can verify the hijacker account to Walter on the ground, the movements immediately after the parachute landed. The eyewitness account given by Jeff Azadak, Azadak, a former cop who said that he encountered Rekka the night of the skyjacking walking along the mountain road near Clayaloom, Washington. <laughs> These names. Um, 
anyway, so they conversed and they ended up at this nearby diner. Um, Oz- Osidich. <laughs> Osidich, I think. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Osidich. Names aren't our strong suit, people, so, so sorry. Not at all. <laughs> Even worse for me. Um, well, so he says that, you know, he was soaking wet. He was wearing a black suit and carrying a bundle, bundled up raincoat under his arm. The diner was nearly empty, and Rekka asked him where they were. He informed him that they were four miles east of Clay Loom. I'm just going to point to you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Um, about 100 miles east of Seattle, and Rekka in turn asked if he could call a friend named Don Brennan in Heartline, Washington, another 100 miles further east, and give him directions. They had said that he did comply, they complied with Rekka's request. At that point, they left him to perform a guitar gig at a local grange and only rejoined this drama in 2016 when Jones and his investigators team tracked him through the local newspaper um, through a reporter. So they share the same profile, the criminal history. He also would boast about committing the hijacking using a parachute. Probably because nobody would believe it even if he said it. Yeah. So Walter had a checkered past. He was born in September 20th, 1933 to a Polish-Russian family in Detroit. Hey. Represent. So, <laughs> so there was bare minimum English spoken around him, especially through his family. Yet the claim of Cooper's hijacked plane was actually flying over the heart of the Cascade Mountains near the Snoqualmie Pass of the far and far from Victor 23 is tough to swallow. Rekka's story challenges the FBI documents that state that state Cooper demanded the aircraft to fly no higher than 10,000 feet. So why would Rekka and the pilots risk crashing into nearby mountains? Like a low-level flight across the Cascades at night, in the rain, the clouds, it seems pretty dangerous. Yeah, a little too risky to, I don't know, seem kind of plausible. So, the claim from the FBI and the crew have provided misdirection. When it comes to the truth of the flight path, in addition, it is that the Rekka flight path has been discussed with the air traffic controllers and the commercial aviation pilots who have assured that flying eastward from Seattle at 10,000 feet is doable. It is the return loop over the lower cascade to rejoin the long-established flight path of Victor 23 through Oregon and the southward to Reno, where Flight 305 actually later refueled. Now, although the FBI appreciates the immense number of tips provided by members of the public, no one to date has resulted in a definitive identification of the hijacker. The tips have conveyed plausible theories, descriptive information, 
about individuals potentially matching the hijacker and antidotes to include accounts of sudden unexplained wealth. Unfortunately, none of the well-meaning tips or applications of the new investigation technology have yielded the necessary proof. Yeah, there are so many theories about this case. Like, so many people obviously got so passionate about it when it was, you know, when it first came out because it was such a crazy story. So, one theory that's, I mean, kind of possible in the case, it comes from a group of amateur scientists called Citizen Sleuths. Uh, they employed the use of an electron microscope microscope that discovered a little more than 100,000 particles on D.B. Cooper's tie that he had left behind. And among these particles, they discovered cerium, I am not into science, so I apologize if I pronounce these wrong, cerium, strontium, sulfide, and pure titanium. And according to the researcher Tom Kay, these are what they call rare earth elements. They're used in very narrow fields for very specific things. Kai said that these elements were super rare at the time of the crime. However, Boeing, which was actually using these elements to develop an advanced supersonic transport plane, and Boeing was the type of plane that DB was on. So they believe that Cooper may have been an employee and Boeing because these elements were found on his tie. Um, they believe that he was either an engineer or a manager in one of the plants. So it's an interesting theory, and I could kind of maybe get behind that. Seems like a legit theory that they tested those particles, and if they were super rare and only Boeing was kind of a major place that had them, kind of matches up if he would have been an employee there, and he knows about, like, the airplane systems and all that to, like, help him pull off this crime. But the FBI ultimately ended their search for D.B. Cooper and called it one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in its history. As of 2011, the Norjack case files actually measured 40 feet long, which is insane, and it covered more than a thousand suspects. I know. The case was open for 45 years before the FBI finally closed it in 2016, um, they said, however, that they're always still open to listening to possible leads and, you know, they would reopen it if the right one came along, but it's just been so long that, you know, they, they can't look into this forever. They have to move on. And it's just so like, I don't know if it's like sad or heartbreaking or mind boggling, like that tie, the DNA just was not enough to match it against thousands of suspects and dna like i know i know like if one thing in this case were tweaked you kind of have to wonder would we know who db cooper was today we may one day technology i know science keeps growing every day so. that's true you never know um but cooper he was believed to be around 40 years old at the time so that would make him like 90 now if he survived that jump which, again, FBI agents do not believe he did. But you never know. Props um, to him if he did. That's... Oh my God. I say it again, but that's that's badass. <laughs> so, only, which was said earlier, 5,800 of the 200,000 was ever found. Um, 
the probability that he survived and took all of it with him, it's probably buried. Or, like the movie showed, he burned it to stay warm. That would suck. <laughs> but after putting all the facts together and listening to the suspect and all the stuff, I want to tell you, I know who D.B. Cooper is. What? You know? Who is it? I do. Who is it? It's Loki. <laughs> They're his brother. That makes perfect sense. You yeah. cracked the case. Yeah. Hi. Uh, he's D.B. Cooper. Who needs the FBI when you got so, low mills on the, on the case? You're welcome, everybody. It is Loki. Crack the case. Best ending to a podcast ever. We solved one of the one of the FBI's most longest and exhaustive cases ever. Our emails are going to be blowing up from the FBI wanting. It's going to be popping in the emails. <laughs> but I'm still trying to figure out if Tupac's really gone or not. That one I'm still working on, but at least I know who DB is. Yeah, we solved one of them. We're still working on that one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's the story of D.B. Cooper. It's a crazy one. And we appreciate the wild ride that you came on with us. And uh, we'll be back next Monday with another new episode, new story. Yes. Uh, Let us know if you like this episode. If you know more information about the D.B. Cooper case. Um, Yeah, just stay connected. Facebook, Instagram, Horror, Wine, and Crime. Our website, horrorwineandcrime.com. And same with Gmail. Subscribe and leave your comments in the comments. Yes, that is the best place to put them. (laughs) And uh, we can make an open discussion and we'd love to hear your thoughts. And maybe uh, you can teach us something that we did not find or did not see. There was a lot of information. So, yes, and I'm sure there's a lot more out there. But until then, stay creepy. He's got to go. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.